0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm Scott Mann. My guest for this episode is Dr. Talia Fletcher, a Canadian veterinarian who takes a holistic approach to animals and medicine, which includes knowledge of permaculture and a background in wolfing. During the conversation today, she shares with us what it means to take a holistic approach to veterinary medicine and how it can reduce the need to treat animals, including antibiotic use. She also shares from her experiences how to find a good vet including some questions to ask and how to honor a vet's time. Talia also gives advice on how to prepare yourself to have animals in your homestead or permaculture farm. As we get started, thank you to the listeners who support the show by becoming recurring members at patreon.com or who donate directly to the show. This podcast depends on you and wouldn't exist without you. The sponsors also help continue this work. Those include Permikids at permikids.com, Inside Edge Design, at InsideEdgeDesign.com, Broken Ground Permaculture at BrokenGroundPermaculture.com, and YourGardenSolution at YourGardenSolution.org. The sponsor of the day is Good Seed Company, a business with over 40 years of experience giving us open-pollinated, non-GMO seeds. Good Seed Company continues the tradition of providing the types of seeds saved by our ancestors for thousands of years, seeds that continue to sustain us today while contributing to a bountiful future for the generations yet to come. Find out more about the rich history of this company and the importance of seed saving at goodseedco.net and shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online, store.goodseedco.net. Be sure to visit them and all the sponsors and find out more about the great work they're doing to create the world we want to live in. Now then, on to Dr. Fletcher. I'll join you again afterwards. Talia, Dr. Fletcher, could you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you
1: came to practice veterinary medicine?
2: Sure. So um, I grew up in Toronto, which is uh, a pretty big city, and uh, I always grew up with some dogs, and I always loved animals as a kid, as a lot of people did, and thought I wanted to be a vet and work on dogs and cats. When I became a teenager, or as I was growing up, I kind of became a lot more concerned about kind of the state of the world and our environment and my dreams of becoming a vet kind of took a backseat because I thought I wanted to do something that would have been more meaningful in my community or that would make a difference in the world type of thing. And I didn't think looking after people's dogs and cats was going to do it for me. So I, I, thought maybe I'd want to do some research or I wasn't fully sure, but I knew I I liked the sciences and wanted to pursue that. So I went to university out in Vancouver, which is on the west coast of Canada, and um, did my undergraduate degree there and still had, you know, veterinary medicine in the back of my mind, but wasn't sure how I'd get it to fit my values. Uh, And while I was there, I did some research and kind of got used to the research system and decided that really wasn't for me and decided that I through summer jobs and stuff, working in different places that I, you know, my goal was to live in the country and do something that was helping my community. I became more interested in food and, you know, how we grow our food and by, you know, supporting local farmers, we can improve our local communities. Um, I became more interested in, you know, uh, looking at the global politics of trade and how food is very important in that. And we can, get some control over that by our consuming choices, like consumer choices. And then I went Woofing, which is uh, an organization that's worldwide called Willing Workers on Organic Farms, or maybe it's called Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. They keep changing the name. Anyways, it's a great organization where you uh, can go and volunteer to room and board on different organic farms across the world. I've done it multiple places, but I decided to do it in Canada to see my own country more I remember particularly one farm I was at in Saskatchewan, which is kind of the center of Canada and the prairies, where they had um, a lot of cows and calves, and they were just talking to me about how this was shortly after um, BSE, that's mad cow disease, had kind of hit Canada and had really plummeted the prices for calves and so they their income had basically been cut completely in half and the father in the in the couple had to go and start working at the oil rigs just to make enough money to keep the farm and stuff like that and the you know short time I was on there the vet did come out and you know check out his bulls and stuff before they put the cows out to pasture for breeding and I talked to him a bit and I saw that okay I could still do veterinary medicine which I like the medicine part of it and stuff and, you know, help people with their livelihood. And if their livelihood is growing food, I could help make sure that the food we're growing is healthy and better grown and stuff like that. So it kind of was a bit of an aha moment that I could be a veterinarian, do the medicine that I was interested in, but work with cattle or farmers, per se, on growing better food And with that, you know, I became more interested in some organic work as well or grazing stuff as well since then um, in terms of how we can feed animals and improve nutrition and reduce our um, use and dependence on antibiotics and stuff like that. So I guess that's, you know, after that, after that, I kind of decided I did want to go to vet school for sure and uh, applied to the University of Guelph, which is in Ontario, and uh, went to that School and I graduated five years ago. So, since then, I've been working as a mixed animal veterinarian. So, I do dogs and cats, and I also do horses, sheep, goats, and a lot of cattle work as well. So, I've kept myself doing mixed because, partially because of where I want to live, it kind of makes the most sense when you're rural being able to do all species because when you're on call, you often need to do all species because you're the only vet who can see it, so you might as well know what you're doing. And then also, Um, I like the variety. Um, I've always liked surgery, so I can continue to do quite a bit of surgery with dogs and cats, because we do a lot more with dogs and cats than we do with cattle. And it's also, you know, um, there is, I think, a a big benefit to dogs and cats for people's lives in my community, and it's a good way for me to get to know more people in my community as well. So um, that's kind of where I'm at now.
1: So that mixed animal focus also kind of falls in line with your perspective on holistic veterinary medicine, because you're not only caring for the animals, but also the people who care for them, both as pets, but also for the farmers who are raising them as part of our food system?
2: Yeah, like, I think if you look at it from an even wider lens, like, I'm just trying to be part of my community and help them out in whatever way I can, using the things that I think are my strengths, right? So, I understand medicine. I, I like practicing it. So if I can do it, then I might as well do it because I can help people with it, you know. So it's, yeah, and it, it's also understanding if I'm on a farm, if they have a dog that some sometimes they have a dog that's just there for companionship. And sometimes they have a dog that they need for their to move their cattle or their sheep. And sometimes they have a dog, you know, for both. And it's being able to help them. Whichever role that dog has, understanding it and helping them with making decisions for that. But also the comparative medicine aspect is, I find, really interesting, you know. So the first time you see something, you haven't seen it before, you're like, well, how would I treat that in a cat? Okay, well, let's treat it that way, you know, or how would I treat that in a cow? Maybe I can look at that perspective when I'm treating it in a dog. Like, not everything can be cross species, and there's a lot of things that you can't use in one animal that you would use in another. But it sometimes gives you a bit of a different perspective if you kind of have that breadth of knowledge, if that makes
1: sense. And how does your work with taking a more holistic approach to veterinary medicine differ from like a more traditional kind of industrial model for veterinary medicine compared to what it is that you do? Like you mentioned a reduction in antibiotic use and things like that. So what does your work look like compared to others?
2: I think some things would look a lot different and some things would look the same. If you have a cow that's calving, that's having trouble giving birth, if you have me come out and and help you or someone else come out and help you, we're still going to do the same thing to get that calf born. That's not necessarily going to be different. But I think veterinary medicine, you could split into the emergency work where something's happening and it needs to be fixed. You know, an animal is sick today and they need to be fixed versus how do we look at like a herd level of health and improve the health of that herd to either reduce the amount that need to be fixed in the future. So, you know, I still do the work where the animal needs to be fixed because no matter how good you are, you may at some point have a cow that is having trouble giving birth type of thing. But I also will, Oh, that's the second time we've been out this year to help, you know, to help you with your cows giving birth. What's changed? And I don't think that's terribly uncommon. I think a lot of vets will ask, you know, do you have a new bull? What's changed? Have you changed your feeding? You know, why this year are we seeing more of it? But I do think that I try to keep that in mind with a lot of what I do of, I'm not just looking at the immediate problem, but what has led us to get here, you know? And then the other thing I would say is, is I do like to do more diagnostics. So I'd like to find out what, is causing the problem so that we can do a better job of preventing it. So, for example, calves will get a type of diarrhea called cryptosporidiosis. And, you know, it looks like a lot of other types of diarrhea caused by different things. And unless we figure out what the cause of the diarrhea is, we may not be treating it or preventing it in in the most effective way. You know, I think there's a lot of vets who are doing that. You know, I don't think I'm terribly unique in trying to get to the root of a problem, from that perspective. So I I think there's a lot of really good vets out there who are doing that. I do think I also, if someone's having more pneumonia in their herd, and I go out and, and diagnose it as pneumonia in their cows, for example, you know, I'll talk to them about how much water are they getting? What temperature is the water? Are they getting dehydrated? Let's look at ventilation in your barn, that type of thing. So, you know, I can't really comment on what other vets do because a lot of vets I've worked with will also take that perspective but I think that there are some people who don't want to hear that from their vet either you know so it's like oh well your your animals are sick because you don't have good ventilation in your barn and it's like so you need to change your barn and then they're just or I would recommend making some changes and sometimes financially it's not possible or they don't know how to make those changes and so they just continue to treat instead of prevent
1: So then I take that that what you're looking to do is to be proactive about preventing ongoing infections and other what might be seen as chronic issues that could be easily remedied by making other changes, that rather than just treat, 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 you're looking for ways to prevent it so you don't have to treat.
2: Oh, yeah. I would totally work myself out of a job if I could. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, I, you know, and I think a big thing of it is management, right? Like what can we do? How can we manage things better to, to avoid or prevent disease or emergencies and stuff like that? Because I think there are things you can do long-term to get a healthier herd or healthier flock. And um, there's ways you can manage them to, to reduce those things. You just need to be really conscientious about your long-term goals and develop them and then develop strategies to to implement them. And and unfortunately like sometimes you know people don't have an option they they bought the barn and and it is the way it is and they don't know how they can fix it, you know, but sometimes it's knowing, you know, who to call to bring in a ventilation specialist to improve the ventilation in the barn or have, you know, a nutritionist that you trust to recommend that to them to say, you know, you should talk to this nutritionist they may be able to help you balance out these levels to keep your minerals high enough, that kind of thing.
1: You mentioned some long-term strategies for flock and herd health. Do you have some examples of those?
2: Some of them would be the regular management stuff. So keeping them, you know, getting good nutrition, like, you know, having good quality grass, good quality hay for them to eat and good housing, good ventilation. You know, some of those things that we try to achieve in our own lives, you know, same thing for the animals. Um, There are some other ways I think that you can look long-term to improve your herd or flock health. So one of the things, like in my undergraduate degree, I studied genetics and evolutionary genetics. And I think one of the things we don't, or some farmers really think about, and I think they do a great job of, and some it just doesn't really cross their mind, is you have a herd or a flock of animals that give birth to new animals every year and you can pick the best out of that new crop of animals to keep as your future females to develop the genetics of your flock and not only do you just when you say keep the best females you've got to decide what makes a best female for what you want so i'll give you an example i know a farmer he was an organic farmer and for the first i want to say five years of farming any cow that got sick he would treat and then When they got better, he would sell. He did not want to keep any cow that got sick in his barn because his mentality was if they get sick, then the barn that I have is not the right barn that they need for their health and they'll do better somewhere else. And I have females born every year. I'll keep some of those and any of those that do well after a few years in my barn, then I know that what they need, I can give them with my barn set up. And that was his strategy. That was how he was going to keep his animals healthy, was any animal that was healthy, he kept. And any animal that got sick, he treated them. And then he shipped them. And, you know, he almost never needed a vet to come out and see any of his animals for being sick, you know? And part of that was the way he managed them. You know, he didn't really push them too hard in terms of milk production and and stuff like that. But it was also the fact that he had selected for very healthy animals from the get-go. Whereas I know another farmer who... Retired, but before he retired, he kind of was lamenting that his cows seemed to get sick all the time, <laughs> and we talked about genetic selection and he said well i'm I'm pretty much close to retirement age I'm not going to do that anymore, but I maybe if I had thought about it twenty years ago, I wouldn't retire so quick you know so I think there's you know that's just an example, but you know so if you have a a flock of sheep and you have a sheep that gets sick, like a lot of people will treat them and then, oh, they survived. And I, I now have a bond with them because I had to treat them once a day for five days. And aren't they strong for getting over whatever they had? The question is also like, well, why did they get what they had? And maybe if they're getting that on your farm, maybe they're not really the best adapted to your farm. And maybe you would do better get having other animals there, like, you know, different genetics instead of those ones specifically, if that makes sense.
1: It does. There are two farms that I visited here in central Pennsylvania, and one was raising uh, Berkshire Old Spot cross pigs because they had the characteristics that they were looking for because they were good on the hilly terrain of where their farm was, and they could also forage very well in the woodlands. Right, And then the other farm, they were raising Freedom Ranger chickens because of how well they could bring in and raise up a flock of like 100 or 150 birds at a go and just need to provide like shelter that was open on one side and just more or less let the birds go. And then whenever they were ready, they'd just go out and they could kind of herd them all together and collect them for sale. But generally, they were very good for the amount of interaction and intervention that those farmers were willing to have with those particular breeds.
2: Yeah, and I think breed selection is a big factor as well for keeping your animals healthy is and and deciding your goals for farming and if that breed is appropriate to help you achieve those goals. So if you want a grass-finished beef, picking a breed that will do well being grass-finished rather than a breed that won't or will, you'll have more trouble with. So all sometimes it's picking a, picking a breed that's appropriate for your goals and being very clear on you know, is your goal to bring them to market by this age and um, with minimal inputs than this? Or do you want to have a bigger market, but you'll need to be feeding the uh, mother's grain in order to, they have enough milk to, you know, give the lambs? So I think one thing is looking at your goals, picking a breed, but also looking at long-term, you know, if you have, let's say these pigs and, one of the sows gets sick and you treat her and she gets better, you know, it's not as hard if you only have a few sows to make a decision, you know, do you keep her or not? But you might not keep her daughters for your future sows, depending on what she got sick with and looking at it that perspective. So you might keep her around because she's still producing piglets that you can sell, but you may decide, okay, well, you know, she got sick and even though she's gotten better, I don't really want to deal with that, so I'm not going to keep her genetics in my farm type of thing. So it's kind of looking at a 20-year picture of what you want your animals to be like in 20 years and starting to think about that now when you decide which animals you're going to breed and which ones you're not.
1: Many of the folks who I know who are doing small-scale homesteading, and I know this has been one of my thoughts as well, has been to buy in you know, a feeder pig in the spring and then raise it for slaughter in the fall or to continually be buying in eggs, That I'll be hatching in order to raise chickens or ducks or things like that. But what you're speaking to, if we're going to be doing this kind of work long term within the permaculture community as homesteaders, as folks who are going back to the land, it comes across that there's a serious need for us to consider raising our own animals over the long term to make sure that we're getting strong, healthy animals that meet our specific needs in the place where we are.
2: Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to be raising you know, have their own multiple sows to be raising their feeders. But if you know a farm that is raising sows, supporting them if they're doing it in a way that you want to raise them. So like, if you're going to buy, let's say a cow, because you want to have your own milk cow, wherever you buy that cow from, looking at their cows and looking at how they raise their cows. And if their cows are on pasture and are doing well, then you may have a good idea that one of their cows would be appropriate for your farm because you want to put it on pasture. But if their cows, this might be a bit harder in the States because of your dairy industry, but if your cows, if the cow inside all the time and never is on pasture, you may not know how well do on grass because that's not the environment they're living in. So supporting people who are raising them in the way that you want to raise them and trying to buy the animals from them because those animals might have, you might have better success raising them if you're going to raise them in a similar way. So if you hear about, oh, there's this goat that's great and it produces, you know, tons of milk and I'd love to get it to milk it, but it's from Texas and you live in New York, that goat may really struggle in the winter, you know, and you may do better getting a goat from nearby who you know that person has raised these goats in that area and they've done well. They might not, Produce as much milk, but they might be hardier, and you may have less health problems with them type of thing so i think I think that's part of it too like it's and I think permaculture in general, you want you know raise species that are adapted to your ecological zone, right like you know you plant trees that you know are going to be able to survive your winters and do well in your summers, and I think animals are the same, you know even though we've domesticated them, and there's lots of different breeds. And sometimes it's just what you can get, you know, your neighbor down the road has this and then you can get it, you know, and oh, you'd love to raise this breed, but you can't find it and it doesn't become practical. But I think also it's trying to do some research into what makes that breed, what you're looking for in an animal and how that breed can fulfill that niche type of thing.
1: And that's something where we have a lot of information on selecting plants and designing plant systems and some conversations within the permaculture community at large about integrating small scale livestock, things like rabbits, guinea pigs, chickens, ducks. But when it comes to larger animals like sheep, goats, cattle, you know, there's a little bit on goats. There's some talk about, you know, raising pigs on forage, um, especially if you're like in the eastern woodlands with oak trees and things like that. But it's still something that's emerging in our literature. And we don't have an equivalent of like edible forest gardens for animals yet to really help with that research and know what the different characteristics of breeds are or really necessarily like what kinds of questions we should be asking when looking for an animal that we want to bring on site.
2: There are some resources for that like there is quite a lot of information about the different breeds of cattle sheep goats and stuff like that it just may not be in a permaculture framework but there still is like I know we have just a raising sheep book that we got when we got our sheep which you don't have anymore but when we had sheep and they had some information there about you know the different breeds and why you would select one breed over another and um, sometimes it does get a little bit I I think that the challenge can be it's a big learning curve for animals in the sense that, you know, they'll talk about their birthing ratio, like how many how many babies they'll have per year if we talk about cheaper goats. Oh, that's great. This one has, you know, on average triplets. Why wouldn't I get that one? And it's like, okay, well, if that one has triplets, there's a trade-off. Like, it has triplets, but it, in order to raise those triplets, that mother needs a lot more energy in order to have enough milk to raise three healthy triplets, which is fine if you have... A setup where you have more grain and you want to feed it to them, that's great. But if you have a setup where you want them on grass and doing a lot of more intensive grazing, having a bunch of triplets and quadruplets, you may be feeding a lot of bottle babies and you may not have the time in the spring to be going to the barn four times a day to be giving these babies their bottle because the mother can't physically raise them. She doesn't have enough energy that she, that's coming in. And I could see how there would be a good you know, potential for further to be some literature about how to pick different breeds and, and what it really means when we say this one has a lot of babies. Well, what does that mean? It means that you're going to have to give it energy to, in order to be successful having that many babies. And You know, this one is short stature. What does that mean? It means that it's putting more energy into having a, a gut and that type of thing. And I think, you know, one one advice I would have for anyone who is interested in raising livestock or working with livestock would be to go and volunteer on a farm that raises livestock because like raises them in bigger numbers. Cause you'll learn a lot just from watching them and seeing how they interact with each other. And then also being around them a lot will I think really help you. I see, and I see the people who've gone and worked on a farm with cattle and then, then they decide to get their own cows or something like that have a much higher success rate than people who, have never really worked with cows and then they get some cows and then they're, it's just the learning curve is huge. And it's a bit different with a tree. Like if a tree, I think there's a big learning curve with growing anything, but if a tree dies, you don't always feel it in the same way that if the cow you've been really working with dies. So I think that's something to think about.
1: That makes sense. And I think about, you know, being able to get a packet of seeds and put out a hundred of something or a thousand of something in a space as opposed to bringing in maybe one or two animals that you're going to raise for a number of seasons, spend a lot of time with them, and have a different yield from that relationship? Yeah. And especially if it's one that you're really depending on.
2: Yeah, I I just think that there's a, you know, to go into it with a lot of research and learning and that you're going to have a learning curve whenever you... Get animals. You're going to need help in your first couple years because even if you read every book, you're not going to know everything. No one knows everything.
1: Even with all your years as a vet and the education as well as the hands-on experience, I'm sure that there are always new things that you're encountering.
2: Every week, (laughs) which is what I like, but...
1: (laughs) So you've talked about the experience that someone should get through volunteering and working on farms to get a handle on what it's like to raise livestock. If someone wants to make this transition to raising animals on their permaculture farm or homestead, what would you suggest that they do in order to find a vet that has kind of a holistic approach, to the kinds of questions they might ask, as well as what kind of experience to look for?
2: My experience has been that part of it is going to be whatever vet you can get. Some places, you don't have options. In a lot of rural places, there's only one vet who really services your area, and that's the vet you get. Some places, you have a lot more options. Some of the questions you can ask your vet would be, call and describe your setup. So, you know, I'm looking to getting animals. I would like to raise them on grass and do intensive grazing. I would like to reduce my use of antibiotics, but I will use them if it's necessary. Um, I'd like to determine when it's necessary and when it's not so that I'm not overusing them, that type of thing, and see what they say. You know, if they're just like, oh yeah, whatever, then that might not be the vet for you. If they're like, yep, we have lots of clients like that, that's not a problem, then that's probably more what you're looking for. I think also that would be one of the things, getting to know them, you know, you can go and introduce yourself if you can ask, you know, when are the vets usually there and going and just introducing yourself would work. The other thing to recognize is a lot of these small farms with one cow or something like that, financially for vets is not always the best clients to have. I I like having them because I like working with them and it's kind of what I do, so I enjoy it. But if you look at it compared to someone who has, you know, a 100 cows and you go out there and you'll treat two cows and they call you more often, whereas you go and you treat someone with one cow and then they call you six times for advice on the phone, it doesn't always encourage vets to keep working with them because they don't feel like they're getting the, the payoff. So what I would recommend for anyone who's getting into it and, and wants to have a relationship with their vet, which I highly recommend, would be to ask a vet to come out and do a consultation. And vets often don't get asked what they actually think about something. They just get asked to fix it. And I think a lot of vets have a lot of the knowledge I've been talking about with what ways can management be improved with ventilation, with feeding, with nutrition. Just people don't ask them, so they don't say anything. But I think if you... Invite them to come to your farm and they'll charge you by the hour and give you advice. I think you'll gain a lot from that because they'll know what happens in the area. They'll know what challenges a lot of new farmers have. And then after that, you've developed a relationship with them where if you do have a question, they don't mind answering it because they know that you're being conscientious about it. So I think the way to go about it would be to recognize a vet is a resource, someone who's really not trying to sell me anything, you know, like the feed nutritionist is employed by the nutritionist they're trying to sell you stuff like everyone else is trying to sell you something The vet is just trying to sell you knowledge that they have and if you're willing to you know pay for them to come out to the farm and do a consultation with you i think when i've done that with people they found it always very useful and it's really opened up a relationship with us that if they have other questions i'm happy to answer them it's the people who are like i don't want you to come out i just want you to tell me what what i'm doing wrong and it's like well if i can't see what your setup is i can't really help you and then I think that's where people sometimes get frustrated.
1: Because then you're building a relationship that is face-to-face by having the consultation, as well as letting the veterinarian know that you appreciate their time and are willing to invest in the knowledge that they're going to be giving to you. So that then the next time when you do have an animal that's sick and you make that phone call, that you have a better understanding of one another to talk about it not only over the phone and but also to help determine whether or not you know a visit is appropriate.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: That small scale client in many cases requires just as much time and attention as that large scale client does, but the financial return is completely different between the two unless there's a recognition of the time and energy required to handle someone who doesn't have a large flock or large farm.
2: Yes, and I think also that I would still kind of Give them a mini, like ask the vet some questions before you set up a consultation to make sure that they are going to, you know, approach your farm in the way that you want them to. So ask them about, are they interested in management? Are they interested in grazing? If that's what you're doing or, you know, have they worked with small flocks before? It can be really helpful. But if they're like, no, we don't really do that, then try to find someone who does, if you can, you know, if you're lucky enough to have more people in your area to help you with that. The other thing is there's often veterinary organizations. So like in Ontario, we have the Small Ruminant Veterinarians of Ontario. In the States, there's the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners. So if you do you know, specifically have sheep and goats, often you can go and look for a member of one of these organizations, and they often just have the extra interest and knowledge in that species that you might find helpful if you can. As I said, it, it really depends on where you are and what your options are.
1: I like everywhere that you've taken us today between, you know, what we can do to select breeds that are best for our location, what is it that we're trying to do, how to consider genetics, uh, as well as, you know, what to look for when finding a veterinarian and developing our own experiences. But as always, before I close out an interview, I always like to ask for final thoughts. So with everywhere that we've gone today, do you have any last comments for the listeners?
2: I love animals, obviously, and I think it's really rewarding raising them. I think it can be a challenge, but I would recommend people who are doing it to kind of do one species at a time. So first get pigs, and then once the pigs are doing well, then get chickens. And once the chickens are doing well, then get a cow. So you don't have as many things you're trying to learn about all at once. And if you could kind of stagger when they need the most attention would also, I think, benefit your farm. If you're interested in grazing and how to set that up and how to bring animals as part of your farm income and the holistic management courses and and information I found very useful for that. And I do often recommend to clients if they have trying to do things on a smaller scale, but still be able to, to make it as their full-time income. I think the holistic management courses are fantastic for that. And the I guess the last thing I would say is Talk to other people who are doing it. Go and visit lots of farms if you know someone who is doing something and go and see. And then always ask them what their challenges have been so you can be prepared. People always kind of like, to, oh, some people always talk about their, their successes, but we actually learn more from learning about each other's failures, I think. So I would encourage you to ask people about that. And and if you are doing well or you finally got feel like you have things under control, host an open house so that other people can kind of see and learn from you as well, which I think is always helpful.
1: Dr. Fletcher. Talia, thank you so much for the conversation today. This was my first real deep exposure to the idea of veterinary medicine and the impact that can have in a permaculture setting. And I'm glad to open this door with you today and look forward to future conversations about these
0: subjects.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to.
0: And that was Dr. Fletcher. As you heard at the end, I'd like to have Talia back on for a follow-up. If you have veterinary questions and would like to have those included in that conversation, contact me and I'll forward them to her for when she returns. Send those messages to show at the permaculturepodcast.com. My takeaway from this conversation is the ongoing importance of design in our practices to set up holistic, sustainable, and ultimately permanent systems. We have a role in selecting for our specific needs for the space as well as the animals we choose to include. If we're able to create a barn from the ground up, we can work with a vet and other specialists to build a space with good ventilation, access to water, and it appropriately in the landscape. If we buy a place that already has pre-existing structures, modification may be required, such as rebuilding the interior to change stall spacing or move doors, which can come at an increase in time and expense to do so. That's something important to consider. A site may at first glance seem perfect, because it has buildings already, But consider having a consultation with a vet or barn builder to see what modification costs might be for your specific animal needs. You may find the cost puts the project outside of your budget as compared to another site on which you can build new, or do something that's owner built. Though this initial cost is judged in financial terms, I think more about the importance of a system that lasts for generations, providing a healthy home for humans and the animals that live there. When it comes to those animals, In picking which ones to raise, we have a greater hand in selecting the right breeds for our space so that they thrive year after year. If you're familiar with permaculture, take your time and do a goals and needs analysis before making any purchases. The time spent planning and researching can save you a lot of work in the long run. As part of that process, as Talia suggests, also plan on how you're going to handle animals that get sick as part of your breeding stock. Will you take an active hand in selecting and breeding, or will you just let nature take its course? As you work through the process of developing your farm or homestead, I'd like to hear what choices you make on including livestock. Get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or give me a call 717-827-6266. And that's going to bring this episode to a close. So until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.